listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. In the last episode, episode 12, that was entitled uh, The Law Versus Grace, um, which was a by far the longest podcast uh, yet, and I apologize for that. Uh, it, it was it's a lengthy topic. Uh, it's a topic that I think every Christian struggles with, not just initially in their faith, but uh, probably even as the idea of grace and being under a covenant of grace sinks in and we gain in our understanding, um, there are still struggles with that. Uh, I don't think that uh, no matter how well you understand this and and accept it, uh, our tendency is to revert back to the law, uh, being under the law, being judgmental, uh, being condemning, Uh, adopting those practices that preceded the covenant of grace, uh, Christ offering up of his life, uh, his sacrifice, his death, uh, his defeat of death, his resurrection, and his ascending into heaven. Uh, Which, because of that, uh, we have been included And what I mean by we, uh, I'm a Gentile. Uh, Most believers today are Gentiles. Not not exclusively, uh, but for much of the history of the Christian faith uh, from the very early days after Christ's resurrection when those early first converts were uh, primarily Jews, uh, the Christian faith has been majorly uh, Gentiles. And as Gentiles, we were never under the covenant of the law, that first covenant. And we, but we want to kind of think that we were and adopt sort of picking and choosing which parts of the first covenant uh, we will adhere to. Um, Certainly not all of it. Uh, certainly not believing that by um, obeying it that we can uh, achieve salvation, that, but that salvation is a free gift, uh, a free gift for the asking, literally uh, asking Jesus uh, to be our Lord and Savior, our bridegroom and husband. Uh, accepting the truth, the belief uh, that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, uh, the promised Messiah, and that he died for us and has forgiven us our sins when we accept him. The law was given, as I said in the last episode, uh, 430 years after God made his covenant with Abraham, 
Uh, you can find this in the book of Galatians, specifically in uh, chapter 3. Um, that the law was given, was handed down through Moses because of Israel's transgressions. And a high priestly system was established, and the high priest over that priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, uh, sat at the head of the government. Uh, the government was a theocracy, and a theocracy is a form of government where a high priest or priesthood sits over it. Israel was a theocracy until that time when they demanded a king. Uh, God said, you don't need a king, but they insisted on a king, and God granted them their desire, their demand, uh, gave them Saul, and that turned out to be horrible. And King David was was chosen after him, but did not immediately replace him. And and we all know, anyone who has studied the Old Testament uh, knows all about that. But that's not at the forefront of, of this episode. This episode is called Grace, Tithing, and Church Buildings. And it is a follow-up to the last episode, The Law versus Grace. Uh, because as I said, Gentiles were never under the first covenant to begin with. And that, that covenant, uh, under the law, uh, it didn't start out under the law. It started out really under grace. It was because of God's grace and Abraham's faith that God made his covenant with him. Uh, and because of Israel's transactions, the law was handed down uh, and a system put into place uh, which became a, a, a form uh, and function for, for worship. Eventually under Solomon, a temple was built, but before that, uh, the tabernacle uh, was built in the Ark of the Covenant and a system uh, of, of worship and the law, guidelines uh, that they were to be obedient to. Uh, but after Jesus came and, and fulfilled the promise. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And he fulfilled God's promise. That began with Eve after Adam and Eve sinned and they were removed from the garden. God made a promise to send his seed. And we believe that seed is Jesus who came to deliver, redeem, and ultimately restore us but as it says in Hebrews 8, um, that which is obsolete will eventually fade away. And it is specifically talking about in the context of the first covenant under the law. We are no longer under the law at all. Uh, we are completely under grace. And I know there's the argument, he says, if you, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And what are his commands? To love God with our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is not, it doesn't mean that we are not as citizens of different countries around the world, that we are not to 
submit ourselves to the ruling authorities of those governments that have been established and uh, the rule of law. But that has nothing to do with salvation. That has nothing to do with grace. And that all the law could do, all that system was designed to do. One, the temple that was built uh, was to be a shadow and copy uh, of of a heavenly realm, uh, especially the tabernacle, uh, until the time came when Jesus was born and offered up his life. It was not meant to be permanent. It was a shadow and a copy because of Israel's transgressions. But that system, all it did was promote the appearance of an inward cleansing, which it could not do to obey the law, to obedient, be obedient to not only the initial law that was handed down through Moses, but all of those laws that were added, which amounted to 613 laws, to follow all of those laws did not mean that you were cleansed from the inside out. Only Jesus can do that to us. But it gave the outward appearance that all of the the more laws you kept, the more righteous you were and the the higher the place you had in the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus says? You know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first because he he was contrasting that that system that those who kept the most laws were the most righteous considered to be the most righteous and just and they were first in the kingdom of god he says the first shall be last and the last shall be first but because we are no longer under the law uh, why is it that we insist on living uh, operating out of this 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 hybrid, what what I consider to be a a hybrid faith that is is the merging of the first covenant under the law and the second covenant under grace. Uh, we we continue to do that, um, and sometimes it's you know when when it suits our needs when we need to be able to justify our actions. We, we pull things from the old covenant and apply them in a new covenant under grace setting. And one of the, the, the biggest areas uh, that, that has, in my mind, uh, perhaps one of the greatest implications uh, for us uh, as the church, as Christ's bride, that has been carried over uh, from the Old Testament and uh, being under the law uh, is is tithing, uh, particularly the the idea that the ten percent tithe has carried over into the new covenant, even though it was part of the old covenant, and for a very specific purpose. But 
if we are under grace, and especially as Gentiles who were never under the first covenant, under the law, is this a correct interpretation and belief that we are bound uh, by this this 10% that it's still in place uh, and that you know it it is required of us this tithing and a 10% tithe so i i, I want to take the rest of the time in this podcast to to explore the idea of the tithe, especially a 10% tithe, uh, both before the law was given to Moses, the time between uh, Abraham and the first covenant and when the law is given, and then what the tithe was for uh, from the time the law was handed down uh, to Moses and the high priest system uh, was, was put into place and um, which eventually, uh, under the law, uh, the temple was built, first the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, and then under Solomon, the temple was built. Uh, and then, post-Christ's resurrection, uh, once the new covenant of grace is established, what does giving look like? Beginning with the book of Acts. Is the, the present system biblical? Um, and you really can't look at this present system, this, this idea of uh, tithing, bringing in first fruits to the storehouse, uh, without also looking at uh, what has become the common practice since since the fourth century A.D. Uh, the building of of church buildings, uh, small, medium, large, grand, and extra grand, uh, because that ultimately is where the 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 greater uh, percentage of our tithe uh, has been going to. Uh, for centuries, building buildings and uh, maintaining them, um, furnishing them, um, heating and cooling them, uh, the property that surrounds them, you know, furnishings, all of that, uh, salaries uh, for this, this, you know, tied specifically to the tithe. Is it biblically, scripturally sound? First, I want to read um, what Jesus said to his disciples in beginning with uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus has just been in the temple with his disciples. Uh, he has pointed out about the, the scribes that they like to parade around in robes, uh, be recognized in the marketplace, take the chief seats of honor in the synagogues, and they pray long, lengthy prayers uh, for show. And then he says, 
and they would devour the houses of the widows. I mean, it's it's really profound. But you have this, you have this, this this stark contrast here, uh, devouring the houses of the widows, and then this big system to support this this whole system uh, to keep it running. And um, he's saying at the expense of the very ones that that you're supposed to be caring for, taking care of. Um, and then he points out who at least one of these widows is and perhaps a model of uh, other widows. Uh, he talks about the widow uh, who gives all she has. She's at the altar at the treasury uh, putting in her two mites, which is all she has, but it's about her faith and trust in God that she knows she will be taken care of. And, and that she, she presents to us this picture of the kind of church that Jesus has come to lay down his life for and is supposed to be going forward. Now that's contrasted with those with everyone else who's giving, uh, who are giving out of their surplus, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your hearts will also be. And if we give out of the surplus of, of our wealth, our resources, uh, in effect, uh, we are giving out of our surplus in every other areas of our lives, uh, to God. Uh, so right after he, he points this out, and, and those folks who are wealthy, they, they really um, represent what the church, the faith has begun, become under, under the, you know, that present system and what Jesus has just pointed out about the leadership and those who want to parade around in robes and be recognized, etc., so then, right after this takes place, he leaves the temple, comes outside of the temple with his disciples before going over to the Mount of Olives across from the temple uh, with four of his disciples. And, he, and it says in, in verse 1, this is verse 1 and 2, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what mad, massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And then Jesus' reply to this is, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And we know that in 70 AD, uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Romans came in and they obliterated the temple they reduced it to rubble. And that's when the diaspora began for the Jews who were sold into slavery. Uh, I don't, I've heard different estimates of hundreds of thousands uh, that were sold into slavery. But that really signified the end in, in, a, in a physical way, a physical reality, in a, in a spiritual realm, uh, the, the, when Jesus offered up his life, defeated death, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, that signified the end of the first covenant under the law. This was physically manifested 
on earth 40 years later in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. It, it, it signified the, the end of that, that system and God's purpose for it, for fulfilling the promise he made to Eve and then to Abraham to send his seed and the new covenant of grace emerged. So what happened next? Well, for the first 300 years, the, the church, because it was persecuted, uh, was underground, and it thrived. I mean, Christians were known uh, for their mercy and compassion. They were the ones who would, would feed the hungry, uh, clothe the naked, uh, minister and pray uh, for the infirmed, and, and the church grew even though it was underground and in facing persecution, it grew. But then something happened in 300 AD uh, in the fourth century. Uh, the ruler Constantine uh, made Christianity the state religion. He brought it up into the light from being underground and this is just my theory, okay? But there were other pagan religions, and those pagan religions, many of them were well-established and had their own houses of worship, their temples. They were a visible presence in different communities and in cities. And how, how do you compete with this? You know, today we would call it, you know, marketing and branding. Uh, but but I, I believe that's essentially what happened, is how do we compete? We, we've, we've got to have buildings. And also, looking back at the, the history of uh, what preceded uh, the, the new covenant of grace and, and the Christian faith uh, based on Jesus... They had a temple, a big one. Um, how are we going to compete? You know, so this church that had remained underground, people living uh, day to day, depending on God for their needs to be met, uh, but the, the church flourishing, uh, lives being transformed. Uh, the word of God spreading, disciples being made, uh, people coming to to faith. Suddenly, we we now are changing the way it has operated for three hundred years, and and we are going to increasingly rely on more and more on our physical, visible presence to draw people in to us. I want to read a, a quote. Uh, it is attributed to Hillary of Portiers, and it was written in mid-fourth century. Hillary says, one thing I admonish you, beware of the Antichrist. It is wrong that a love of walls has seized you. Wrong that you venerate the church of God in roofs and buildings. Wrong that beneath these you introduce the name of peace. 
Is there any doubt that Antichrist will have his seat in them? To my mind, mountains, woods, lakes, prisons, and chasms are safer for either abiding in or cast into them. Now, this quote actually comes from Calvin's Institutes. Uh, John Calvin, the, the, the father of Reformed theology, um, this is what it says about Calvin and his referencing this quote by Hilary of Poitiers. Calvin is referencing the issue with regard to the errors about the nature of the church. The church itself, the building, and, and that, that operating with it being central to the Christian faith, the church itself becomes the object of worship. And he goes so far as to even call it a lurking hydra. In other words, really, in the same way that, you know, the building created a system with Israel that in effect became the object of worship rather than, than the author of it all. Calvin is, is saying the same thing. That is going to be our sinful tendency to really be deceived through false reasoning and to believe that, you know, this form and function, even though we really don't, yet that is the model that we follow. That And from there, you know, marketing and branding takes place to put ourselves out there, to be a visible presence, as if to say, you know, th this is Jesus. This represents Jesus. And in reality, uh, we likewise, like Israel, are, are guilty uh, of, of the church in this system really replacing God and, and becoming the object of our affections in worship. And uh, if we don't believe it, all we have to do is follow the money trail. Where our treasure is, there also will our hearts be. So now, if I haven't lost you, uh, I want to talk about the tithe because it's, it's, it's critical uh, to this episode and, and talking about grace, being under a covenant of grace, and uh, what, what tithing, giving should look like, uh, what, what, what should the priorities be for our giving in the ways that um, uh, our resources are used? What, what do they majorly, should they majorly go to support? And uh, is, is a building anywhere in that, a part of that, uh, central to that? Um, and, and I'll add one more point. When, when God hands down the law and then he gives the instructions for the tabernacle as well as um, 
the Ark of the Covenant and, and later on the temple. He gives very, very precise measurements and instructions for the way it is to be constructed because he says it is a shadow and copy of the heavenly sanctuary. After the covenant under the law is fulfilled through Christ and it ends, it becomes obsolete and what becomes obsolete will eventually disappear when under the new covenant of grace, are we given any instruction by, by the disciples, especially Paul, uh, with it having been handed down from God? The precise measurements and dimensions and construction instructions for building houses of worship church buildings in effect. Where do we see that? We, we don't. We see, in fact, just the opposite. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 19 through verse 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And he's talking about Gentiles. Paul is addressing uh, the Gentile church in Ephesus and he is presenting to them that the covenant of grace has now been extended to Gentiles. There are no longer two separate flesh, Jew and Gentiles. God has removed the dividing wall and now there's no such thing as Jew nor Greek, male nor female. There is a level playing field when it comes to salvation and being included in the household of faith. That's what he's presenting here, and he's saying this uh, in that context. Consequently, again, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's amazing. That's those are the only instructions that we have that have has anything to do with a building. And it is a building without brick and mortar walls. No roof. No cement or block foundation. No fixtures. It is a temple joined together by the many members through the Holy Spirit built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That's the only instruction that we have in the New Testament under a covenant of grace for having a building. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear when he tells his apostles, who are disciples, haven't become apostles yet, he said there are, 
many rooms in my father's mansion. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you this. I am going to prepare a place for you in my father's house to put additions on my father's house to make room for you when you are restored with me at the end of the age at the wedding of the lamb when we are officially married to Jesus. He didn't say, while I'm gone, go build houses unto me. Go build church buildings while I'm gone to build places for you. you. You build places for me to represent me, to symbolize me. No, each of us is, according to Scripture, a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We were not supposed to waste our money, to take the money of believers in order to construct with brick and mortar buildings, some of which cost in the millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars to represent, to symbolize Jesus and our faith in him. Now, one of the, the main passages of Scripture to justify having a building, uh, implementing the, the 10% tithe, uh, or the tithe, comes from Malachi chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 8, and that's where I'll start, and going through verse 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I have heard again and again and again since I became a Christian um, that it's now the local church, which generally includes uh, the support of a church building of some sort and the operation, uh, the, the maintaining of that church building, that it now, under a covenant of grace, is the same as the storehouse that's being talked about in Malachi. And nobody questions it. Everybody just goes along with it be because those who instruct us in this have also been taught this and have come to believe this. Uh, and if you will listen to uh, some earlier episodes, especially the, the first episode uh, in this the podcast, um, deception comes from within. It comes from uh, our leadership, those that we have placed our faith and trust in because they, they uh, 
many of them are, are studied and, and credentialed and approved by larger bodies, by denominations, and so we have no reason to doubt them. And it's not that they are intentionally trying to mislead us or deceive us, but, you know, that's what how deception works. You know, Eve was deceived first, and then she became the deceiver of Adam. She didn't know she was deceived. No one knows that who's deceived knows that they are deceived. But th- this is an area, truly an area of uh, profound deception when you think over uh, the many years, the many centuries dating back to, to the 4th century A.D., how many lives, how many souls suffered those who had nothing or barely anything but were required, uh, pressured by leadership to bring their offerings, to, to build these, these giant monuments. And some of them are... are magnificent examples of of architecture. Uh, No one can argue that. Uh, But were they really done in the name of Christ to glorify God? Or are these monuments really unto man? Uh, Sacrificing those souls, those lives, uh, who those tithes, those offerings that were meant to support them in their infirmities, in in their nakedness, in their hunger. I imagine uh, the numbers are in the millions, in millions, too too numerous to count. Uh, And and all were, were led to believe that they should do without uh, in order for God to be glorified through these these monuments. Well, let's let's talk about the tithe, uh, where it came from, uh, what its uh, specific purpose was for, was was intended to do, uh, and when it started, uh, because. For the first 430 years, um, from the time that God made his covenant with Abraham, uh, there, there was no mandatory tithe. The first time, uh, a 10% or a tenth uh, tithe appears in Scripture is in Genesis 14. Uh, verses 17 through 20, and it has to do with with Abram. He hasn't been named Abraham yet. God hasn't changed his name, and uh, Melchizedek. Um, then, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
Now he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of all his spoils. Now it would be easy to say this is the biblical precedent for the uh, one-tenth or 10% tithe. Um, but, you know, we have to look at what information is, is actually given. Uh, one is that it doesn't say that Abram gave 10% of everything that he had, that he possessed. He only gave him 10% out of the spoils uh, from his victory. It doesn't say that this was a practice for him uh, prior to his doing this, nor is there any evidence that this was a practice going forward. We really don't have any idea why he gave this 10%. We can speculate. Uh, maybe he did it, you know, it just as a because of thanksgiving, wanting to give credit to God and uh, knowing this role of Melchizedek, this, this high priest, which um, comes up again in Hebrews, um, that, that Jesus uh, is high priest now uh, in a heavenly realm, and his is an eternal high priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. So we do have, have this biblical precedent for um, an eternal high priesthood. But in terms of, of giving and a specific percentage, um, we really can't take anything away from this other than what it just says. He gave 10% of his spoils to Melchizedek. And I, I presume it was probably to help support him. I don't know. I have no idea. We are not given any information about Melchizedek and what his needs were and, and maybe an order that he was part of. We have no idea. But Abram recognized who he was, that he was a high priest of the living God, the same God that he had faith in, and he made this offering. And that's about all that we can take away from this. The second and only other time that the 10% amount, call it a tithe if you want, um, it doesn't say that specifically, use that word, uh, was with Jacob in Genesis 28, uh, verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that thou, all that you give me, that God gives me, I will surely give a tenth to him. Jacob makes this, this vow to God. Um, this is after uh, 
God has visited him in a dream, and Jacob sees the ladder reaching into heaven and God's angels ascending and descending. And he makes this promise afterwards. It, it doesn't say anywhere that this was a practice, an ongoing practice um, prior to this uh, by Jacob or his people for giving a 10% amount. And in fact, Jacob does not do this immediately. Uh, it's not for another 20 years uh, that Jacob returns and uh, this is when he fulfills this vow to God for giving 10% of everything that, that he has. What's interesting, uh, and I will go ahead and, and, and preface talking about the tithe under the Mosaic law once God hands down the law to Moses, and this theocracy is established with um, uh, a high priest sitting at the head of it, uh, over a, a priestly order, the Levitical order, uh, which is very significant uh, in terms of, of the tithe and what its primary purpose was for, uh, or one of its primary purposes. But under the Mosaic law, unlike Abram, uh, for instance, or Abraham eventually uh, later, um, he gave 10% out of the spoils of war, uh, you know, which, which could have been you know, everything, you know, clothing, food, riches, uh, livestock, you know, we, we don't know all that entailed. But, but it was very specific um, under the Mosaic Law that, that the tithe was supposed to come from the increase of crops and fruit and, and herds, livestock, and that this was not given on a, you know, monthly or weekly or even uh, daily basis. Uh, this was supposed to be done on an annual basis, you know, when, when the new uh, yearlings were born from the livestock, when, when the, the, the crops were harvested. Uh, so um, it, it was done at those times of the year, but only once a year uh, when those increases came. And it wasn't, it, it was not prescribed to be the spoils of, of military victory or, or anything else. Um, it was in these specific areas. Leviticus uh, chapter 27 verses 30 through 33, these are uh, this is the, the first time under the Mosaic Law uh, this, this tithe uh, is being prescribed. Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If, therefore, a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. And for every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It, it shall not be redeemed. So 
here it it clearly says in Leviticus what the tithe is to be made up of. Um, crops, uh, fruit, livestock, uh, but nowhere does it, it talk about uh, tithing in, in terms of money. Um, in, in Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 through 24, uh, it talks about that the sons of Levi, who are the priests, they will be given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. And this is in return for the service that, that they perform uh, in the tent of meeting. The Levites, because they are per performing these services um, and have no inheritance this tithe is supposed to be for their inheritance. They are supposed to be cared for. Uh, and these, so, you know, this 10% tithe of crops, including the fruit from trees um, and livestock, essentially is to feed them. You know, thus, when you look at the end of Malachi, Malachi, uh, beginning with chapter 3, verse 8, when it's talking about bringing in the tithe to the storehouse, because that's what it was. That was the place that they stored all of this in order to help support the Levitical order, the, the priest. Uh, to feed them because they had no income and no inheritance of their own. Now I know this, this may be hard to, to hear, but think about it this way. Israel is a theocracy, which is a form of government like capitalism or communism or socialism, uh, but it is a form of government that was prescribed by God uh, that put a a priesthood uh, over Israel with a high priest sitting uh, over the priesthood, appointed over or chosen over this priesthood. But it was a form of government. It was the it was faith slash government. There was no separation between church and state, so to speak. It was all one. So this 10% this tithe was, in effect, a tax. A tax that cared for the priesthood and their services at the tent of meeting. And ultimately, when the temple is built... There and they also had uh, privileges or, uh, or permission to to eat uh, animals that that w had been sacrificed to the carcasses of animals that that had been sacrificed, because that's how they survived. That's how they were funded and kept. So this would be you know today we have separation of church and state and all of us give our taxed 
you know, on our income, and that tax goes to fund all kinds of government services, uh, welfare, law enforcement, military, um, and then we are kind of pressured or told that we owe essentially a 10% tithe on top of that, which in, in a way is kind of, it's a tax uh, on top of the tax that we already pay to our government. When Israel paid this, this tithe, they were paying it to sustain their form of government, their theocracy. And guess what? We, we talk about the 10% tithe being what is required of us, but the reality is there was at least a 20% tithe uh, required by Israel under the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14, verses 22 through 27, and I'm not going to read all of this, it says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year, and you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. This 10% tithe is an additional 10% tithe because the first one says that all of that is to go to support the Levites, the Levitical order. This tithe, another 10% tithe, so 20% is to provide the food for the feast and festivals that Israel celebrated, were required to celebrate each year. Finally, yes, there's an additional tithe. This is found in Deuteronomy 14, uh, verse 28 through 29. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or an inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. Now, there's no clear consensus on whether this is an additional third tithe or it is instead of um, the second tithe. Uh, it, it doesn't say, but it doesn't matter. It's not that much more since it's every third year. Uh, but the point is that the tithe under the covenant of law, you know, the Mosaic law, the law handed down, to Moses because of Israel's um, sin, their transgressions uh, incorporated in that is this, you know, this tax uh, to provide for the Levitical 
priesthood uh, because, again, it is a theocracy. Uh, but it is also uh, because there are the feasts uh, that are celebrated throughout the year. Um, they also uh, have to be provided for uh, in order to you know, for everybody to be able to participate, to to celebrate, to to eat unto the Lord, and so there is uh, at least a twenty percent tithe, ongoing tithe, uh, for that. One final point to make about this is that this was, and it, we we got to understand this. This was required by law. This was not voluntary giving, not like what uh, Abraham did or Abram with Melchizedek giving him 10% of the spoils of war uh, in celebration of, of his victory, nor what Jacob vowed to give God. Um, those were both voluntary. They were not prescribed by the law. They were not commanded by God for them to give. These were required by the law. They were mandatory and they supported this theocratic system of government. Let's look at the New Testament now. Uh, under the covenant of grace, what tithing should look like. Is it required or is it like Abraham and Jacob? Is it voluntary? And if it's voluntary, uh, then uh, what should it go for? What, what can do we get from uh, the New Testament after Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven. What does Scripture reveal to us, beginning in the book of Acts, what our uh, giving should go for? Uh, what, what should it support? What are God's priorities for us as His church, as His bride, um, what is it that God wants us to be moved in our hearts to voluntarily give to? Perhaps the best place to begin is with Jesus himself, who said that he came to serve and not be served. Uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about material wealth there, uh, that we would become lavishly rich. Uh, no, we, we have become rich because... We have been adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we have an inheritance that awaits us. That's how we have been made rich. Through Christ, who was rich 
and became impoverished on our behalf. He's our example. That's where we have to start, is with his example, which wasn't 1% or 10% or 25% or 95%. His example is 100%. There are a number of passages that, that could be cited uh, in building this case, uh, talking about giving and uh, I mean this isn't about our not giving that that's not the point the point is that it is not uh, mandated uh, we are not compelled by the law or rule and regulations like we are you know as citizens of a country um, the law dictates that that we have to pay taxes and we give based on on our income. It's decided for us. We have no free will uh, choice in whether we want to do that or not. Um, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, let each one do just as he has purposed or decided in his own heart that we shouldn't do it grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. We should decide what it is that we should give, what we feel led we should give, and we shouldn't do it uh, with contempt or feeling like uh, we're being pressured or forced into doing that or shamed. Uh, no, it, it should be uh, because we are led in our hearts and minds in the promptings of the Holy Spirit what it is that we should give, and it should be done cheerfully and with no strings attached, I will add. You know, it's uh, once we give something away, we no longer have say-so about it. It no longer belongs to us. It didn't belong to us in the first place, right? It belonged to God, and um, we give it away, and we don't try and control what is done with it after we give it away. Uh, if God leads us, give cheerfully, not grudgingly, and, and what we have decided, uh, been led to give. It is just as plain and simple and uncomplicated as that. And in terms of the kinds of things uh, that we should be giving to, um, three basic areas. You know, it says to take care of the household of faith first. And, you know, I, I don't want to be too um, finite in that. Uh, you know, but but I think you know what we would immediately think of is the body of believers that we gather with, that that we belong to, that we have committed ourselves with. So you know, other believers um, that that we should uphold each other not only in uh, prayer, uh, encouragement. Uh, giving a helping helping hand as needed, but but also financially, 
And, you know, we, we find this at the very outset in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse uh, 44. It said, all those who had believed uh, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Uh, that That's incredible. That's, that's, you know, some people have tried to to ascribe that to communism or socialism, but those, you know, if something has an ism in it, uh, it's it's a, a form of government or uh, an ideology, uh, a political ideology. Um, th- this is not talking about government. This is talking about what what Paul said in Corinthians about giving what we have purposed or decided to give and to give generously, cheerfully, and unbegrudgingly. Nobody mandated that anyone sell a thing. You know, they were moved to do this to support the household of faith so that no one was without, that everyone had at least their basic needs being met. It doesn't say they went out and they sold every single thing they had and uh, were themselves destitute. That's not what it says. There may have been those who had such deep trust and faith in God, like the widow at the altar who gave all she had, that they were able to do that because they knew God would care for them and meet their needs. But, but we have an amazing example here, just one example. Um, where this takes place at the very beginning, and there is no, uh, it is not prescribed giving, and it's not a designated amount of giving. Perhaps uh, John, in First John chapter three, uh, verse seventeen, uh, really best sums this up. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That reminds me of a quote by uh, Francis of Assisi, who said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if necessary use words. You know, it, it's really our actions that speak the loudest. You know, it's easy to tell people we love them uh, or that God loves them, but it is it is the hardest thing in the world to actually show them that love, uh, to lay down our lives for them, um, to joyfully, unbegrudgingly, not not only um, through giving of, of our finances, our resources, but uh, but to give of ourselves, um, to to offer up ourselves uh, to others, uh, serving them and not being served by them. The next area of giving or area that we should support is those who watch over us, who who shepherd us, 
who have been called and we have accepted them to fulfill uh, these roles or this role uh, and in position over us. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know, this very clearly is speaking of those who uh, are our shepherds. Uh, it's not necessarily talking about this this vast staff uh, that we need to have. You know, the the average church today spends forty nine percent of its budget. What what is brought in through tithing, giving uh, for church staff? Forty nine percent in in some churches. Uh, spend as much as, as 60-65% or more for staff out of their budgets. I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, it's no wonder there is not that much to help out uh, the household of faith uh, as needs arise. And they do arise. They're constantly arising. Um, another passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 16 through 14. Paul says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So he's, he's saying, you know, before, in the past, under the law, uh, it says, he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Uh, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things that we may not cause that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So here he does tie it to the Old Testament and to the purpose of the Old Testament tithe. But the difference is that was done based on the law. It was a requirement of the law, and it was part of the system, their governmental theocratic system. You know, the, the priests, the, the Levitical 
priesthood order, had no inheritance. They had no means, no way to support themselves in their duties. And so that 10% tithe was given to support that. Now, it's, it's so tempting to translate that, uh, to carry that over as being required. But Paul never mentions that. He just brings up the principle for doing that. The last area, or the third area, is caring for the poor. Not just giving money for other people to use it to make those decisions for caring for the poor, but for us to to individually uh, be able to do that, uh, to use our you know not only our lives uh, but but our financial means as well uh, that we don't have to give all of it over uh, for someone else to make those decisions for us um, that that we hold on to those finances that in order for uh, to you know, be able to make those decisions uh, for helping out others uh, who aren't of the household of faith, you know, who, who um, we hope through our acts of love, which includes our finances, uh, that they will be drawn uh, through these actions. Uh, Jesus talks about this with his disciples in Luke 12. He said, um, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storerooms or barns, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds of the air? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life, a single cubit? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the fields, uh, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, don't worry about it. For, for the pagans, in some translation, says the Gentiles, the Gentile world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But here it is. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And his kingdom is not a building. Sorry, that's my commentary. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Here it is. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, that's it. Storing treasures in heaven. Selling your possessions, you know. In Acts, they were selling their possessions so that no one did without. 
where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Each of us, both individually and corporately, we, we can do a treasure inventory. We can find out pretty quickly where our treasure is. And when we find out where our treasure is, uh, we, we can be very assured that really exposes where our heart is. Uh, Matthew 25, when the disciples are asking him about uh, what, what is going to be the basis for the separation of the sheep and the goats, uh, Jesus' answer is, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You know, that, I mean, that more than maybe any other passage, you know, he is not saying that, that you paid someone else to do it. You financed them. Uh, you funded an organization. It says, you know, the measure, the evidence of those who are sheep and not goats or those who go and personally themselves serve and are not served. The least of these. Uh, we cannot remove ourselves either financially or physically by the places we, we, we live, uh, the, the communities we hide ourselves in. Uh, that is not the same thing. We have to go beyond that. Uh, we, we can't, there's nothing wrong with funding that, but we also personally, no one is exempt from this. It doesn't say how many times, you know, you evangelized, how many people made a decision based on your presentation of the gospel. That's not included here in the separation of the sheep and the goats. It is a very personal that you have done personally unto these, the least of these, you have done it unto me. There is certainly a lot more that can be said about giving uh, and the ways that we give, um, not letting our right hand know uh, what our left hand is doing, giving anonymously, not calling attention to yourself, not, not wanting others to know what it is that you have given, uh, scripture telling us that um, if we do, then we will have had our reward on earth. Um, you know, the scriptures plainly teach us about giving. For instance, who we should be giving to and why. Uh, but, but nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament can you make 
a scripturally based argument that we are under the law when it comes to tithing and the specific amount that we are to tithe. Um, if we're going to do that, then we need to bring back the law in its entirety. Uh, but, you know, the way that we do church today and have done it for centuries, this is what it looks like. You know, you, you put a leadership body together and then, you know, you get a building to house it all in. And, um, and it goes on and on and on from there. And unless we are able to compel people to give and we prescribe a specific percentage of uh, their, their income, of their wealth in order to do that, uh, and the only way we can really do that is to reach back into the Old Testament to the Mosaic Law, which we are no longer under. And as Gentiles, once again, we were never under to begin with. Um, we're not going to get our buildings built. We're not going to build uh, these great um, massive buildings uh, in the name of God, but are really for ourselves. They are for us. We are giving to something in the name of God, which we are the primary beneficiaries of. Following that same logic, I mean, couldn't, couldn't I really say that since the Holy Spirit abides in me and Scripture says that because of that, I am an individual temple unto the Lord, and so is every other believer, uh, couldn't, couldn't I really justify holding on to all of it for myself? Uh, that because God's Spirit abides in me, that uh, I am to glorify God, and therefore everything I hold on to and spend for myself to be the primary beneficiary of how is that wrong? How does that go against uh, this same argument for giving to build a church building, to have church buildings, to spend so much wealth, uh, put so much money into something that is generally 75% of each week uh, completely empty? and cannot be used for anything else except because of the way it's designed as a church building. The decision, though, is, is yours. Um, God, under grace, gives us that freedom. If, if you want to follow uh, a 10% tithe, if you believe that is scripturally correct and um, the, the body that you or the fellowship that you were a part of strongly stands on that, then and you agree, you know, you have the freedom to do that. We all have the freedom to do that. Uh, 
but we are under a covenant of grace and that's really really hard uh, as Christians to to fully accept and embrace that um, that we in no way are under the law whatsoever let me end with uh, this passage from Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery the entire book of Galatians is Paul presenting to the Galatians the fact that they have received God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by grace, not by works. And yet they have chosen to um, mix a covenant of grace with a covenant of the law, to return to the law. Uh, and, and that is this yoke of slavery that he is talking about. If we are under grace, we are no longer under the law. Then it says don't, don't return to that because to, to return to that and for us as Gentiles who were never under it, to place something on uh, ourselves that, that we were never under to begin with is, is to place a yoke of slavery on ourselves. Why should every other aspect of our lives be free from the law except our financial giving, our giving? Uh, we have complete freedom to do that. But, but we should, we do have responsibilities. We, we should be burdened with those who care for us, who watch over us, who shepherd us. And those who are of the household of faith, both, both locally within our fellowships, but, but also uh, throughout the world. Uh, those who are also citizens of heaven, who are also in Christ, already seated in the heavenly realm. Those citizens of heaven who who are scattered throughout the world in all the nations, but who we are joined together in the Spirit. They are our care and concern, as well as, as the poor. But we are free to choose as we are able, based on what we have, what we will give and to do it unbegrudgingly, to do, to give what we have set our hearts on to give, to do it cheerfully, to do it anonymously, to do it willingly, in order to store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question. 
is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Until next time. <laughs>